Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. This is Darren Doctorman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. See, I thought it was a classic femme fatale. Just so much fun. Like that Shakespearean lace in your acting. I said, Gene, what do you want from this character? I want you to just take the character and make it your own. <laughs> <laughs> I had a good time on the film. On day one, the movie was already $15 million over budget. We started this movie without an ending. That's like painting yourself into a corner. I don't think we've ever had a Star Trek oh, captain on our true. show. Being, as you said, number one of the, on the call sheet, it is a producer's position if you're going to take it seriously. I was so glad they didn't cast me as Lorca. <laughs> <laughs> you famously wrote that script in 12 days. On one level, I wrote the script. And on another level, the story was written by everybody in sure. his brother. New episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen to podcasts, or download the Electric Now app. Keep on trekking. Ingloriously, of course. Inglorious Trexperts, the only podcast for fans with a life, is available every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts, and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. If you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. My new book, Secrets of the Force, is now available in hardcover, digital, and audio from St. Martin's Press. And check out my other great oral histories with Ed Gross of Star Trek, The 50-Year Mission, So Say We All, The Complete Oral History of Battlestar Galactica, and Nobody Does It Better, The Complete Oral History of James Bond and Spymania, all available in hardcover, paperback, digital, and audio wherever you buy your books. Sundays on Electric Now. Tune in to the official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast with me, Yel Teagle, and my co-host, Felicia Michelle. Each week, we'll be breaking down another episode of Leverage Redemption. Plus, we've got exclusive interviews with the stars, as well as some games, and we'll even be showing off some amazing fan art. So after you watch Leverage Redemption on IMDb TV, you'll definitely want to join us here to catch all the Easter eggs and behind-the-scenes fun. The official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast. Sundays on Electric Now. If you like listening to this podcast, you'll love watching us on Electric Now, the free video streaming app featuring video versions of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts, along with full seasons of The Librarians, Leverage, the exclusive Leverage Redemption After Show, as well as Flash Gordon serials, hysterical comedy specials, and much more. Download it today from your favorite app store or watch us on Roku, Stir, DistroTV, Zumo, Sling, or Plex. Our ship might not be the biggest. Ah! Oh, sh And we might do the missions nobody else wants. Come on, you've been in tougher spots than this. Thanks, Tom Paris. I am a little worried about the fumes in here, though. You know, since you're talking to a plate. <laughs> but we are still Starfleet. you guys if only we had special powers we do maybe not here but here our skin our brains, brains. Our, it's our right. brains. brains are inside of our skin there's a team waiting to take me to the brig isn't there oh, you know me so well love you mom love you too never disobey me again i do what i want This is Peter Holmstrom. And this is Lisa Clank. And this is the Trexperts Briefing Room, where industry professionals curate audio commentaries with the creators, creatives, and diehard fans of the Star Trek franchise.
You know a franchise will last forever when it manages to transcend genres. Sherlock Holmes, as an example, has been interpreted as a comedy, a gay erotic romance, and a children's animated program centered on a pair of dogs. Creators breathe new life into a franchise and thus allow it to be born anew for a next generation. Star Trek, while occasionally having comedic elements or romantic subplots, has always resisted fully committing to a different genre, maintaining its dramatic science fiction roots for the better part of 55 years. That all changed in 2018 with the announcement of Star Trek Lower Decks, a half-hour comedy series centered on the crew of USS Cerritos, the Federation starship that makes second contact with Strange New Worlds. On the show today, we have Lower Decks screenwriter and executive story editor M. Willis joining us to discuss the episode of Lower Decks she wrote for season two, We'll Always Have Tom Paris. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about this episode and about Lower Decks and everything about Star Trek. This will be so much fun. Uh, first <laughs> question I wanted to ask you, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, What's your origin in Hollywood and how did you get your start? Yeah, uh, well, I guess I'll talk about kind of my first contact with Star Trek because it is so much uh, what I grew up with and why I came to Hollywood. And I grew up as um, my parents are international school teachers. And so they met and taught overseas at American schools. And I was born in Malaysia and we moved to Saudi Arabia in Riyadh, small compound no television. <laughs> and wow. um, yeah, and so what we would do is my uncle would send us care packages and it was full of what he was watching at the time, which was TNG and Deep Space Nine and then Voyager in the later years. But um, that was what I survived on. I would watch and rewatch those tapes over and over again. And it was a really special thing with my mom in particular. She is the Trekkie of the family and she loves the shows and she loves rewatching them as well. And so that's what I grew up with in Saudi. And then when we moved to Abu Dhabi, we had a little bit more television programming, Western television programming over there, but we still didn't get Star Trek. And so my uncle, he would continue to send these VHS tapes of um, Deep Space Nine and Voyager. And I think it wasn't until Enterprise and Enterprise got an international uh, viewing overseas. And so my parents didn't have to rely on those VHS tapes anymore. But that was, you know, that was my introduction into the world of Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek. And later, you know, I started watching the original series and then all of the movies. And I loved the storytelling. And it was probably the first time I could actually kind of see the mechanics of storytelling too with the procedural nature of, okay, in the first five minutes, here's this cute character scene. Then we have, you know, the introduction of a problem. We have the conference table where everyone's going to sit and discuss the problem. <laughs> and then we're going to come up with a solution. That's not going to be the right solution. So what's another one? And just seeing that mechanic of storytelling kind of, sparked my interest in television and writing TV and telling stories this way. And that, uh, you know, it took me a minute to realize that that was my path because at first I thought I was going to be a diplomat and went to Tufts University to study international relations. And it took me until my senior year to be like, oh, wait a second. I really, really like television <laughs> and yeah. made a very dramatic pivot and came out here was an assistant for many, many years, was a uh, production assistant in basically every single department there is, 
just trying to like meet people and work my way up. And one of the people that I met was Mike McMahon and he was an assistant at 20th Animation and I was an assistant at one of the agencies in town, CIA. And he and I hit it off because we both love Star Trek. <laughs> and, um, and so we, we bonded over that. We bonded over assistant stories. I was a writer's assistant on one show and I would just call him crying about terrible things. He would tell me all the terrible things that was happening to him as an assistant. And now, you know, we're both working on Lower Decks and you see just how much of that Hollywood assistant storytelling is in the show of what it is to be a lower level assistant level person in this dream job, but having to do kind of the, the jobs no one else wants to do. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. We'll especially get into it when we start watching the episode because there's definitely. some very funny, <laughs> I, I watched it and I was like, oh yeah, this is definitely written by a former assistant. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know this story. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think buffer time in the first season was definitely like, that was one of Mike's uh, assistant stories of, you know, no boss really knows how long it takes to go get lunch. So yeah. you might as well add another 20 minutes for you to go grab a Starbucks before you come back with everybody's lunch. <laughs> it's so interesting though. you talk about how you learned the fundamentals of storytelling with from Star mm -hmm. Trek. And like, we had Brian Fuller on here a few weeks ago and he would talk about how like Lisa, uh, talked him through kind of the, the the breakdown of the story and how influential that was for him uh, in developing his own writing style. And it's just like, it's amazing. I wish the writers of Star Trek would like write a book just telling me like, how does this work? <laughs> Tell me how to write. <laughs> I was totally like grad school. Uh, I mean, I was, I was an English major and you know we mm -hmm. didn't really have much of a film program at my college. And so when I came out here, I kind of got the crash course in how to write for television from, from Star Trek. Oh, wow. So you guys back in, the, was it like, you had the whiteboard and you wrote towards act breaks. Yep, we did. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's always fascinating because it is kind of like, that's what every writer's room continues to be. Even in the Zoom era, we're finding, you know, uh, digital versions of our whiteboards. But um, yeah, it's a fascinating, very particular way to write story. Mm -hmm. But I, I love it. I love the writer's room. Yeah, I miss it. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> What was the inspiration for this particular episode? Well, this one, uh, so we started the second season of Lower Decks at the, um, I think our first week was the first week of lockdown here in California. And we had one new writer join, Catherine Lynn, and she was the only person who hadn't been in the writer's room first season. And she had also binge watched the entire season, the first season, uh, in anticipation of joining the show. Mm -hmm. And so she was really like our first fan who had seen the show in its entirety, but also hadn't been a part of those conversations. So we were just picking her brain of like, what were things that you liked? What worked? What didn't? And one of the things she said, she was like, it's really strange that Mariner and Tendi don't really spend that much time together. And we all sat back and we're like, oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> given we only had 10 episodes for that first season. So there's a lot of character pairings that haven't happened yet. Um, but it was a, kind of like a glaring omission that we immediately were like, that ha this has to be one of the first three stories that we tell this season is just getting Mariner and Tendi off on an adventure. Mm -hmm. And I think, especially with writers rooms in Hollywood, you hear about kind of the close-knit families and your work friends become like very, very close to you. 
but there is also a separation of what is a work friend versus what is someone you're going to be spending your evenings with, your weekends with. And so we talked a lot about that and just what, you know, the politeness of a work friend versus the knowledge and uh, emotion of a true friend Mm -hmm. and wanting to kind of shine a light on Tendi and Mariner and say, okay, this is a work friendship that could be something more but neither of them yet want to admit that it really isn't a true friendship just now. Uh, So that was kind of the inspiration of that story. And then of course we knew we needed to bring Shaxx back in some capacity. (laughs) Um, And so we had a lot of fun talking about, you know, how we were going to do that. I think we went down a long rabbit hole of, you know, exploring a whole story of how we're going to get him back an adventure that the bridge crew is going to be on and, doing this and that to bring Shaxx back from the dead. We talked about the Voyager episode, um, Barge of the Dead, just Mm -hmm. kind of like building out what maybe a Bajoran afterlife was going to be and, you know, how he, you know, he'd be fighting the prophets, the Paul Wraiths. And eventually all those conversations kind of ground to a halt when we remembered we're not telling the story of the bridge crew, we're telling the story of the Lower Decks they aren't going to know what sort of adventure, you know, Freeman and Ransom went on to get Shax back from the dead, but he's just going to appear there one day. And you're just going to have to live with the fact that you don't know how that happened. Yeah. Yeah. And then of course we knew we wanted to bring a legacy character back from Voyager this season. And, you know, we were throwing around different names. We knew Prodigy kind of had Janeway already. And so we were kind of discussing different possibilities. And there was a minute when we were joking around about a great title name of Waiting for Chakotay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, thinking about different characters that would be fun to see with our crew. And eventually it had to be Tom Paris because he just has a lot of similar energy to Boimler. And uh, I think it was a fun idea to bring him back and particularly using the plates that my uncle had boxes and boxes of commemorative Star Trek plates that I now have. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) I think I only ever saw the full breadth of of plates phenomenon when I went to Star Mm -hmm. Trek uh, the Star Trek convention in August in Las Vegas. And there was a dealer that just had like mounds of these. But I was like, oh my God, there's so many. <laughs> there's so many. There's for really random different episodes. Yeah. It's bizarre. I, I If I was a plate person, I would absolutely buy. They're beautiful. I mean, I was, you know, but I was just like, I don't know if I'm going to, I'm not really a plate guy. But I if I were. <laughs> <laughs> the, the one that I have from him is like a Jerry Ryan, you know, full shot of her seven of nine. I'm like, I don't know if I feel comfortable like putting this in my house right now, but <laughs> this is cool. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> well, let's get right on into it then. Um, so for listeners cool. out there, we are watching Star Trek Lower Decks season two, episode three. Uh, for now, it's only available on Paramount Plus, but if you're listening in the future, it, uh, you can definitely pick up the Blu-ray um, or probably buy it from another streaming service. I don't know. Star Trek tends to get around, it seems. So it's um, all right. So, uh, and we will do a countdown, and then we will all press play. Three, two, one, and play. Welcome back to the Serenos, okay. Mr. Boimler. You know, first question for the episode, like, 
Writing for animation, I imagine, is a very different skill set than writing for live action. You had previously written an episode of, of the Exorcist television series, and um, and I know that like Lisa and I co-wrote an episode of, of Pandora together, which was a CW show, and like we had written a script which we thought was very budget conscious, and then like the first note was like everything has to be slashed in half. Combine everything together. We can't afford that. <laughs> um, but uh, when it comes to animation, um, what concerns going into it do you have about like constraints, budget, things like that? Yeah, um, it's you know it's different for every program. I worked at DreamWorks for a couple of years. I was on Shira and the Princesses of Power and Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous. Shira, like Lower Decks, is you know two D animation and. Um, there's certain limitations, like everything has to be drawn. So if you're writing, you know, a big action sequence, which we have later in the episode, that requires different backgrounds, different locations, different characters. Um, and it's, you know, all of those things have to be drawn by really talented people. And so it does get a little expensive. On She-Ra, we had, we didn't have as much money as um, we have for the production of Lower Decks but uh, we were a little bit more limited in you can only have one location and you can only have three different shots of that location. And do you really need three new characters or could it be one new character? <laughs> um, so with this, uh, I think Mike coming from Rick and Morty uh, really was kind of knew how cool stuff could look if you did just throw a ton of money and resources into it. And I think that's what makes our show stand out in this animation space is that it doesn't feel as limited and we don't have to repeat a ton of sets and character um, incidentals is what they're called. Um, and so it, it, it looks real good. <laughs> yeah. It does. And especially yeah. the opening title sequence here. I just adore it. It's great. <laughs> I love this title sequence so much. Chris Westlake did a fantastic job with the score, but especially our title sequence. I am constantly humming it, you know, yes. when I'm washing the dishes. Um, and he just dropped the album of it uh, oh, the other day. Yeah. And so I think it's on Apple and uh, Spotify, but it's just, it, he did a really great job with it. Yeah. And it's also just like all the visual gags are so oh, fun. Yeah. <laughs> like every good title sequence, it tells you what the show is going to be, which is like there's a dramatic element to it, but it's kind of absurdist as well. And that's, that's yeah. the show. And that's amazing. And getting to see Mike's name and all of our names in the Star Trek font is I will never get old or never get over <laughs> it. It is just always amazing. Yeah. So do you get to go to like the um, the taping sessions for the voices and do you get to see the animation as it's being done or do you just see the finished product? Yeah, when we were all together for season one, uh, the animation, like our uh, character artists, our editor, uh, everyone was on site here in Los Angeles, except for we had a team in Vancouver as well. Titmouse is our animation company and they have the people who are doing kind of the actual like animation um, up there. But we get to see the artists and our director. Uh, they're all here in LA. And so you get to have conversations with them and you have a tone meeting where you kind of go through the script and say, okay, here's this joke and this visual gag to this Star Trek episode. And thankfully so many of the people who work on the show are already very well versed mm -hmm. with the world of Star Trek. And so they're like, oh, right, right, right. I remember that episode. That's the one where Picard gets stabbed. And they're like, yes, <laughs> tapestry. Um, so it's fun to uh, be able to kind of knock um, ideas around with the artists and the director. 
Like they also bring, um, I mean, especially for the second episode of this season, which was, I'm forgetting the title of it, but it was the collector's ship and you just had so many Easter eggs. So many. And that was, that was a lot of the artists just having a ton of fun, like including little things in there too. So surely we gave them a list, but they just went wild. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, the level of fandom is so evident with this show and, and like how much research, I mean, you, you talked about how deep your fandom goes early on, but like how much research does, do you guys continue to have to do? Like, I'm always amazed oh, rewatching yeah. Star Trek of how much I have forgotten. <laughs> and, and, you know, <laughs> it's just, are you guys just constantly watching episodes over and over again? <laughs> yeah, we certainly, you know, uh, I guess on other shows you would call it homework, but for us, it was just like, okay, we're going to watch some Star Trek tonight. <laughs> um, and it would, you know, sometimes Mike would uh, send us off with very specific episodes of like, hey, we're, you know, uh, looking at... Uh, you know, visiting parents episodes. So let's just watch a ton of, you know, parents and family episodes. Uh, other times it would be, uh, you know, find some weird science episodes and go wild and bring ideas back in the morning. And it was a lot of fun. But I, I am so curious, Lisa, because we relied on Memory Alpha, the website. Oh, yeah. So much that I just am wondering how it was for you on the fourth Star Trek show, well, fifth if you include the animated series, to be able to like go back and do your own research while working on Voyager 2. Well, it was, it was really necessary a lot of the time because of course when we were pitching around ideas, there was so much Star Trek history that it was like, no, we can't do that one. They did that on Deep Space Nine. <laughs> no, wait, that was in the fourth movie. No, wait, that was in the animated series. And so we all had to have kind of a an encyclopedic knowledge of what had been done before um, so that we could avoid it. And uh, I mean, all of us, I think, coming onto the show were Trek fans. And so we didn't have to go back and, and binge to get familiar with it. But uh, we did have, you know, our assistance. And anytime that we did need to go back and watch it, of course, we, we did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember hearing about how Jerry Taylor, when she first got hired on Next Generation, she wasn't a Star Trek fan particularly, and she had to like go home every night and would take VHS's tapes. That would, you know, Paramount yeah. would just make her VHS tapes that she would go home and watch the original series of, and <laughs> found her fandom oh, wow. that way. And different world today, because we would just mm -hmm. throw on the streaming app. <laughs> or go to Memory Alpha and just be like, yeah, I know everything. Yeah. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> but, um, I'm curious, did you guys have a tech advisor? We had a tech advisor for season two, Dr. Erin McDonald. Uh, she joined the whole Star Trek franchise. And so she was able to come in and kind of help us with a lot of the science. But then some of the rest of this is, um, I think there's a, a trans warp line later on in the episode that uh, I got wrong. Because <laughs> it yeah. was something where I was like, okay, this is what I kind of remember from Threshold. Um, and, and apparently the internet quickly corrected me. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, internet. Oh, no. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, they'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, just, you know, everything's right con these days, so it's fine. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> Yeah, you're you're the final authority on these matters, not, not the internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you have a favorite character? Oh, my favorite character. Uh, I mean, Mariner is is who I love to write for, and getting to meet Tawny and and watch her in the voice records, it was always so much fun. And she is also such a Trekkie and comes with a ton of love for the series. 
that it's always really fun to write her. And a little bit of that, I think, in my later assistant years of kind of that, I've done this job before, I don't want to do it again, but I know how to do it really well. So I'm going to yeah. do it and then have fun with my friends. Um, so I love her, but um, yeah, I think she's probably my favorite to write. Uh, though I, I love Teddy too. I think she's just a beautiful soul and getting to write this episode for her in particular was really fun because, you know, you look at some of the other Star Trek species in the past. I love the journey that the Ferengi make in TNG and then ultimately Deep Space Nine where it is a completely different characterization of that species by the time, you know, you've got Quark and uh, the family and every like Moogie. And, yeah. um, so uh, I think it was a nice opportunity for us to do a little bit of that unpacking and exploration with the Orions and give them a little bit more characterization and depth and nuance, uh, even though it's a comedy. <laughs> Yeah, you have to. Otherwise, nobody's going to care about the comedy stuff if they don't care yeah. about the characters. Yeah, a lot out of me. Especially during this episode, I feel like it's it's there's a lot going on here too, which I think is such a, a testament to the writing. Is that like there's like a very strong A, B, and C storyline going on here, and it's great for that. But like, um, in terms of breaking down episodes in in the writers' room, like you know, Lisa would talk about how on her time in Voyager, it was like they broke it down act by act within the room and you know it was a very commun detailed communal process um for lower decks like is that a similar thing or is it much more like single writer pitches and then you work it up yourself how, how does that work yeah we pitch and brainstorm as a writer's room so it's everyone kind of saying well i'm interested in this type of story and we haven't done x y and z especially just going through the genres of episodes from the Star Trek world of like, there's always the hologram episode. There's always, you know, this type of episode. And my first season episode, you know, it was very much inspired of Visiting Captain and the two-part series Chain of Command with Jellicoe and wanting to do a Jellicoe-type episode. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so this, uh, you know, came from talking about different episodes. We really love Tapestry, obviously, being a big influence. And then, you know, you start to get to specifics. You start to figure out which character is the A story, B story, C story. And we will break um, each story uh, fully separately and then weave them together. So you'll break a full A story, break a full B story. Um, and in this case, I think this is one of the rare episodes where there is the C story. Break those together. We do a little bit of the Dan Harmon um uh, story circle which mike learned when he was on rick and morty working for him there and that's you know it's a little joseph conrad and uh it's really difficult to like not look at story and not see story circles now it has purely infected my brain of just everything is you know okay here's your inciting incident and here's the moment of you know this is a moment of honest chaos and this is a moment of dishonest chaos and here's the order and um, but it, it's a very effective way of figuring out how to get a story that moves and turns and isn't a, because this happened, then this is going to happen, and then this will happen, and then this will happen. You've got the but and the therefores changing the story and making it a little bit more dynamic. Mm -hmm. So we do the story circle, and then each writer goes off and writes the outline, and then a first draft and a second draft. 
And then once you are in records with the actors, you get to do pitches and alts for jokes. And uh, when Robert came for Tom Paris, that was over Zoom. And I got to be a part of that Zoom. And it was so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just because he came in with, you know, he was this character for so many years. Like he knows how Tom Paris talks better than anybody else. And so he was like, I think if we have a yes ma'am here, that would be really great. And maybe we can figure out a way for me to say something about tomato soup. And we were like, I don't know if there's there's room for that, but let's you know give it a try. Uh, so he was just totally game, uh, which I think has been really fun with all the legacy actors coming in um, and getting to reprise these roles. This was supposed to be my chance to show Dr. Donna that I'm ready for more, but I failed her. Don't be so hard on yourself. So do you have any aspirations to uh, to direct episodes or to get further involved in production? You know, I I wish I knew more about like how to draw. <laughs> um, I am not an artist in any capacity, but uh, I do love watching the storyboard artists um, work because so much of that is camera direction. And uh, if you've seen animatics, are, uh, you will kind of have a stick figure of a character and maybe it's green to indicate that it's Tendi or red for Mariner. And it's a lot of just uh, where the camera is gonna be, the feel of the scene and uh, the remarkable uh, first step of an animation show. And I find storyboard art really interesting and really intriguing. And I wish I could maybe learn a little bit more about that. I have considered the Animation Guild offers classes. And so part of me is like, I think it would just be fun to be more knowledgeable about that side of this mm -hmm. industry. When going back to, uh writing for in the room this is a show that does have a season-long arc to it there is a serialized element to it but it's also very focused in on episode to episode storylines like how concerned is are the writers in the moment of like okay we need to be hitting this part in the season or how much is it more like we're focused on episode to episode and we'll weave in a serialized element as we go along i think with with lower decks we definitely want it to be episodic um, kind of that, you know, like that classic, classic Star Trek of here's a problem today that we're going to solve by the end of 40 minutes and move on. And someone can be a salamander today and we're not going to talk about it tomorrow. <laughs> and, and so that was definitely the, the tone and the vibe we were going for. Um, but uh, especially with new Star Trek and some of the um, you know, the season finales of our favorite uh, 90s Star Trek, they always had that element of serialization and characters are, you know, is, is Harry Kim going to rank up? Who knows? Um, and, you know, you have uh, character serialization stories. And I think that was what we were always looking for of there's not going to be, you know, a big mystery of you know, something's happening at Starfleet and we've got to figure it out. It's more something's happening with these characters and so we need to figure that out. And so we knew we wanted to continue the story of the pack lids, but what that means for our crew. And we knew we wanted Boimler to be coming back in the second episode, 
But it's not until the fifth episode of this season that you kind of get that moment of resolution between Mariner and Boimler of what that meant to her as a character for him to abandon her and leave her. And so little things like that you want to see through the season. And that was stuff we were always aware of, but we didn't necessarily write towards like, okay, here's our fifth episode. It has to be about X, Y, and Z, but more can we see this in, in a clever way while telling this type of episodic story. Well, I think what's so amazing too about the show is that it, it has that kind of classic Star Trek twist at the end, the kind of the Twilight Zone, like, oh, everything we've thought of in this episode is wrong, and there's actually a new way to look at things, which I think to me is like an essential element of Star Trek, which it doesn't always get highlighted enough because it's like, it's, it's, we're so used to the characters like just being the smartest people in the room, but when you watch the episodes, you're like, no, they actually thought, they actually thought of something entirely different for the longest time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, how, how much awareness even before, because you were there before the show, you know, early on in season one, like how much awareness or, or uh, mandates were there about like, okay, this is how we break down a Star Trek episode specifically. You know? Yeah, well, I think there was always the idea that even though we're going to be talking about these lower deckers and their stories and some of their smaller character stories, there should always be a classic Star Trek episode running in the background. Um, So, you know, Freeman is going to be dealing with, uh, you know, uh, an alien species that doesn't want to blow up their sixth moon and that's going to be happening. But with our lower deckers, it's just going to be about the engineering group that's blowing up that moon this week um, and less so about the politics of that place. And yet we as the writers still need a resolution for that story. Um, and so that's always been, I think, the biggest challenge of writing the show is figuring out those big Star Trek tentpole stories but putting them into like a c or a d story even of it's just running through the background and yet needs to feel fulfilling to an audience who wants to know those story beats so you had to know what was going on on the bridge even if you didn't show it exactly (laughs) were there any stories that you really really wanted to do that you haven't had a chance to do Oh man, I, we had talked a lot about different hologram episodes and we got a little bit of that with um, Badgie in the first season, uh, Rutherford's creation. But I think we've, you know, we've talked about different, uh, and uh, of course the movie episode was our big hologram episode first season. Yes. <laughs> My favorite. I love that episode. It's so <laughs> great. And it's so fun. And obviously there are a lot of movies to, to do parodies of. So I think probably more to come. Um, but awesome. yeah, I, I love a classic. Uh, you know, Picard just wants to be uh, what's Dixon Gray, D- yeah. not Gray Hill. Um, Dixon. Dixon Hill, I think it is. Just Dixon, Dixon Hill. Dixon yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, just wants to be, you know, a pulpy uh, Raymond Chandler type. And, uh, you know, I, I I long for us to be able to do a story where it's just Mariner uh, wanting to be, I don't know, wanting to be Xena or wanting to be <laughs> uh, some other cool badass hero and just have fun on the holodeck. Okay, so death is the first thing that happens. And then, oh, wait, you do know about the Black Mountain, right? Uh, the what now? The Black Mountain is a spiritual battle. I'm doing that thing where I'm just like watching the episode. It's so entertaining. <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> it's uh, you know, when, when 
you're looking at Lower Decks, it takes place a little bit after Nemesis, but um, uh, definitely long before uh, uh, Picard. Like, how, how much awareness is, do you have of, like, the larger franchise and the plans for that franchise and kind of fitting into this area of, of the Star Trek universe? Yeah, I mean, it's a very, it was one of those things where we were aware of what was going to be happening in Picard just because we were leaning up against that time and that period so closely that, you know, we were kind of like, okay, wait, so so stuff is happening with the Romulans and we got to make sure that we don't do this. And everyone's kind of in concert with each other with the secret hideout Star Treks of knowing different things that are happening so that things aren't touching so that Prodigy can have Janeway and um, other people aren't going to be doing things with that character. Uh, and it's a real challenge just because there are so many Star Trek properties happening at the moment. And, you know, you want to make sure if we're doing something with Andorians that somebody else isn't also doing something with Andorians that's too close. Yeah. And so working in concert with that is really hard, but uh, I think I think they've been able to pull it off uh, pretty well so far. But yeah, it is a very narrow time window. And one of the jokes we always said season one was that we could always say that someone did the clocks wrong and they've just been saying the wrong star dates for a couple <laughs> <laughs> and, and have a little bit more time before Picard era starts. There's always the old alternate timeline theory. Exactly. <laughs> Or this is just a big simulation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so are you hoping to stick with animation or branch out into live action as well? Doing both would be lovely. I would love to be able to move back to live action. I did that briefly on The Exorcist and it was a blast. And I am definitely a drama action writer at heart. And I would love to go back into that space, but animation has been very good to me. I have enjoyed getting to work on it and getting to put kind of my producer hat on a little bit earlier in my career of getting to be a part of those records and those tone meetings and, you know, learning everything. And so it has been a really remarkable experience to be a part of that. I did have a question related to that. You kind of answered it a bit earlier, but like, to me, just in terms of career-wise, like I would love to transition from live action to animation. And like for you, like what was that process like going? Because you were in the Exorcist world and you were writer assistant, you wrote a script. So that seems like we're going down the live action track, and then mm -hmm. you, you hop over and, and start working for animation. Like, was that just because of the friends you had and the connections you had in the animation world, or was there a, a, a bit more of a you know seeking out these sort of opportunities? Yeah, it was, you know, season two of The Exorcist, we kind of knew was going to be it and there wasn't a future there. And so I was scrambling, looking for my next opportunity. And I just happened to get a call from DreamWorks. I had a coworker and friend who was there and she knew I was going to be looking for work. She sent my script over to uh, Noelle Stevenson and Josie Campbell on She-Ra. And credit to Josie Campbell, she read my very dramatic, very noir sci-fi pilot that is deeply violent and upsetting and said, I think you can write princesses in friendship. <laughs> um, and knowing that writing is writing and that even though I hadn't written an animation um, show or for kids, that I was a writer and I could do it. And so I joined that staff and uh, Josie has taken me on to many projects since then and has become a good friend. 
but it was um, it was a very interesting pivot in my career and one I am very grateful for. It's amazing. Uh, we just saw we just saw yet another scene in the brig. There's a lot of brig shots in this. Show yeah. and I, <laughs> I love that about it. Yep. It's, um, it's it's definitely worth highlighting the brigs in my yeah. Opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did reach the end of the episode there. Um, so you know, when, look, we're reaching the. I believe the season finale is coming up soon, right? It hasn't hasn't come out. It yet, has like, dropped on Paramount Plus. So. Uh, uh, it is available. Yeah, it is available. There we are. Um, when looking back on the season, what were some of like the highlights for you of uh, of Lower Deck season two? Oh, I mean, I think I already said, but just being on the Zoom uh, with Tom Paris himself with Robert was <laughs> such a joy and so much fun. And it was very, you know, it was, I think I got the call 15 minutes before the Zoom was supposed to start from our amazing producer Brad Winters where he was like, do you want to meet Tom Paris? And I was like, yes, please. <laughs> and I hopped on the Zoom and that was just remarkable and so much fun. But I think also now that the fans understand what the show is, understand that we are not here to make fun of Star Trek, but that we love the series and the franchise so much and we are here to celebrate it. I, I think I always equate that the show is full of a bunch of Starfleet nerds who know everything about Starfleet and know about, you know, Janeway and the Delta Quadrant and all these different stories that they hear as lore. And it is written by a bunch of Star Trek nerds. And it is people who have been nerds all their life, like me, or <laughs> people like Ann Kim, who came fresh and new to the series season one. And she wrote a season two episode, which is uh, all about the drills of various different Star Trek, like things that happen in this space and in this world. And that's a remarkable episode for someone who had never seen a Star Trek episode until she started and now is so well-versed in this canon and in these stories that she wrote an episode that is all about, you know, the different genres and tropes found in Star Trek episodes. So what shows are on right now that, that you watch and that you like? I adore what we do in the shadows. Oh yeah. I find that to be so fun. And it, this current season, I think it's season three is, has something similar to what we did with Tendi and Mariner, which is they're putting Laszlo and Colin Robinson together and it's a remarkable pairing and it's really fun. And you're kind of like, oh, why have these two not spent a ton of time before? And I'm sure it's something where in their writer's room, they're like, oh, these two characters haven't spent a lot of time together. We should pair mm -hmm. them up. And I think it's, you know, it's definitely a, a cheat and a trick that a lot of writers use on uh, shows that as they continue to go, you're like, wait a second, uh, these pairings have never happened. And maybe there's some fresh story that we can get by just putting them together. So I am enjoying that. I am watching Foundation, um, C, and a lot of the Apple uh, shows, but also Squid Game, because everyone oh, yeah. watched Squid Game. Everybody's watching it. <laughs> yeah. That's for sure. Um, well, I, for one, am, am very much looking forward to the future of Lower Decks. I, I hope it's, yeah. it, it was, I, I, it, it's, I agree with you though, too. It's, it, I think it took a little while to take hold in the fan base, mm -hmm. but as people started to actually give it a chance, they're like, oh, this is actually fantastic Star Trek. And yeah. it appeals to both the hardcore fan base, but also um, the new viewers and people who are just looking for a fun and entertaining show. So it yeah. is, um, it's fantastic for that. I'm hoping for a comic book run too, because I think it would work very well as a comic book. 
Oh, yeah, I mean, we have talked about having like a George R. R. Martin level Billups uh, and his homeland and his home world <laughs> with the castles and the dragons. And uh, yeah, I think that would be very fun. Uh, so certainly I think there's more, um, more lower decks in the future, uh, just outside of the show itself too. So that expanded universe is certainly coming. Fantastic. Well, Im Willis, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been yeah. a blast. Um, if thank people want to get in touch me. with you or uh, connect up, where can they where can they reach you at? I am on Twitter probably too much at the other Willis There we go. There we yeah. go. Um, <laughs> well, Lisa, thank you very much for being here. This is a lot of fun as always. Um, if you want to connect with us listeners out there, you can reach us at Inglorious Trek on Twitter or uh, at Inglorious Trexperts on Facebook or Instagram. Um, we want to thank our sound engineer, Bill Ritter, and his protege, uh, Mark Rivera, as well as our executive producers, um, Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin, and our producer at Electric Entertainment, uh, Natalie Miscali. Um, so for Lisa Klink and myself, I'll say thanks for being here. And the briefing room is now closed. Scott, what do you repeat what you just told us? About an hour ago, the bridge control started going crazy. Levers shifting by themselves, buttons being pushed, instrument readings changing. And on my monitor screen, I can see Mitchell smiling each time it happened. As if his ship and crew were almost a toy for his amusement. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.